Got some loud talkers over here. Mr. Lindsay took the hint. He's going to regulate. Thank you. Thank you for uh, the men who came and preached while I've been gone. Thank you for those of you who prayed for me. I had surgery uh, on my lower back nearly a month ago, and it was a complete success. Actually, was uh, freed from the pain that I had on the way home from the surgery, and then just had some pain from the surgery itself, which is totally subsided, so uh, I have zero pain. Uh, I have some restrictions in place from the doctors for probably about another month or so, and then I should be completely back to normal. The first couple weeks following my surgery, I was restricted to lying down in bed, which largely turned into a hallmark bender. I watched a lot of Christmas movies. I wonder if some of you are disappointed that your pastor wasn't doing something more spiritual with his time. It's almost like a confession. If you have never seen a Hallmark Christmas movie, I can summarize them for you. Every single movie begins with an aerial shot of a small town covered in snow with bell music in the background. Welcome to Garland, Montana, Mistletoe, Vermont, or Evergreen, Wyoming. That's how every single Hallmark Christmas movie starts. And every Hallmark Christmas movie ends with a kiss. Every single one, very predictable. Between the snow and the smooch, you have the story. And during the story, a young man and a young woman fall in love with one another. Along the way, you will find green and red in every single scene. No one will ever do anything wrong, including, say, happy holidays. And the entire town, though upper middle class, will work no more than two hours per day, <laughs> leaving plenty of time for sipping cocoa, decorating something, or gathering daily in the town square. At some point, Usually, in the last 22 minutes, the main characters will have a massive misunderstanding that they will always work through. And in the end, outside, while snow is falling, the movie ends with the kiss. Sprinkle in a failing family business or some travel trouble and you've got yourself a Hallmark Christmas movie. One thing I left out, in every single movie, something is at work behind the scenes. Something is bringing people together. Something is 
making the impossible possible. Something is changing hearts, and that something is what people in the films are called to hope in. It's what they are called to believe in, and it is something that is at work that ultimately results in joy for everyone. Now, in the films, what is that? It's Christmas magic. It's Christmas magic that they're called to to believe in, to hope in. It's Christmas magic that ultimately works everything out. That's not something we believe in as Christians. But we do find ourselves as Christians in an ultimately predictable story that will end well. People will be brought together. The impossible will be made possible. Hearts will be changed. And that will lead to joy. But not because of Christmas magic. Because of Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'd like to do this morning as we consider joy. I would like us to do what God's people have been doing since the beginning of time. We're going to look back and we're going to look forward. This is always what God's people have done. And this is what God's people are called to do. And this is how we find joy. We're going to look back and we're going to look forward. We're going to look back at promises made and kept by God. And we're going to look forward to promises made that are yet to be fulfilled. Our God is a God who makes promises. And we should always be people who are looking back at promises that God has made and kept and looking forward to promises that have been made but have not yet been fulfilled but will be in the future. If you're going to be joyful, that's not an easy thing. If you're going to be joyful, I propose that that should be your daily practice and it should definitely be the rhythm of advent looking back and looking forward looking back and looking forward but before we go any further let's stop let's pray together please bow your heads with me our father in heaven keep us where we need to be this month keep our minds and hearts on and in your words so that we wouldn't be caught up in joy or celebration that is disconnected from you or from the gospel. Keep us. Keep us through the preaching of your word right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for almost 2,000 years, people have been celebrating Christmas. Celebrating the birth of Christ. And while today most people call this celebration Christmas, historically, since at least the 4th century, many Christians have called it Advent. The idea is that during the first four weeks of December, anticipation builds for Christmas Day. And that is meant to remember and mimic the centuries during which anticipation built for the very first Christmas Day. And so our tradition here has been to 
set aside those four Sundays before Christmas Day and going through the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. And then our celebration culminates on Christmas Eve with a Christmas Eve service, which you're all invited to, by the way, and your friends and your family as well. Now, the word Advent means arrival. That's what the word Advent means. That's all that it means. It means arrival. And here's the thing. As you read the Bible, you find two Advents. Two Advents. You have the past arrival of Christ at His birth, the past Advent of Christ at His birth, but then you find the future arrival of Christ at His return. And so Advent, arrival, celebrates both. We look back and celebrate the Advent of Christ, and then we look forward. We're a people who are saying, come quickly, return, Lord Jesus, and we're looking to His second Advent. Jesus came, and because He came, He promises that He will come again. So we can't celebrate one without celebrating the other. Charles Wesley, he understood this. He understood this looking back and looking forward at Christmas. In 1744, he wrote a hymn called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We just sang it. Two of those verses were added later, but I'm going to read you his original two verses. And I want you to hear this looking back at the birth of Christ, but also looking forward to the return of Christ. And he was inspired to write this hymn as he walked the streets of London and counted the innumerable, innumerable orphans. He saw so much sadness and so much sorrow and so much despair that to find joy, it drove him to looking back and looking forward. So listen. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born, he's looking back, to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. From past he moves to present. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, and now he's looking forward to a promise that will be kept, raise us to thy glorious throne. He covers the whole spectrum. This is what we should do at Advent. So let's do the same thing. Let's look back for joy, and then let's look forward for joy. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll start. Open to Luke chapter 2, which you'll find on page 805 if you're using one of our church Bibles. And then if you want to flip to the end of your Bible and put a place marker in Jude 1, 
you can do that on page 964. So those are our two pages. I, I thought that was funny. David, he, he said he wanted to give a page number. Did you catch that? And, but he couldn't give a page number. Because if you go to Jude 1, there's no page number. But if you flip forward two pages, there's a page number. And then you just subtract two, and you get a page number. And David's a math teacher. Hey, man, you've done this to me, so it's my turn. You know this story. This is, this is what comes easily for us. This is looking, looking back, and we're going to have to look forward during Advent, too, but, but let's start where we already are. Luke chapter 2, 6, verse 6, here's the Christmas story. While they were there, that is Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. A manger is a, a feeding trough for animals because there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus was born, we're told in two quick verses. It was a reason for great joy which is exactly what the angels told the shepherds who were in the nearby field. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that is the Christmas story. That is the Advent story. That is the first arrival of, what is he called? A Savior. And who is that Savior? It is Christ the Lord. That is a story, also keep in mind, that is a story of a promise made and then kept. That is a promise that has been fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. The promise was first made. You could flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible if you wanted to. And in chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and gone their own way and turned away from God, ruined everything, God came to them and He had, he had words for them. And He had words for Satan. He had words for the serpent who had come in and had tempted Eve and won Eve and then Adam. And, and God had these words for Satan. And the promise that God made to remedy this, to rescue His people, to save His people, the first time He makes it, He's saying it to Satan. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity, that's war, 
I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring. There's going to be a child that's going to come from this woman. Generations ahead, we know. But there's going to be a very special child, a very special offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. There will be war between you and this child. And he will bruise your head. It's like this pinpoint of light in the darkness. There will be a child. And when this child arrives, this will not go well for you, Satan. There will be war. And he will win. There's just this little promise in like seed form. And you could keep reading and reading and reading and read throughout your Old Testament. You see that pinpoint of light. It gets, gets a little brighter. It gets a little brighter. It gets a little brighter. And then Jesus is born. The light has come into the darkness. The light has come into the world. Our congregational reading that we're reading this month from Isaiah chapter 9, it's prophetic. And it was said to and written to people who were waiting for consolation, who were waiting for redemption, who were waiting to be rescued. It was written in a particular desperate time for them. They're longing for that promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to be fulfilled. I'm sure they questioned, will it be fulfilled? Is this ever going to happen? Did we miss it? And then here's more information that is given in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, looking to the future. For to us, a child is born. A child, there's that offspring again. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Listen to the description of this child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This child will be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Remember that enmity, that war, that victory that will bring in peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government, of the increase of peace, there will be no end. Peace forever. Increase of his government, his rule forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the point at Advent. This is the point of the lights on your house. This is the point of the lights on the tree. This is the point of the tree. This is the point of the wreaths, the decorations, the food, the gifts. God keeps His promises. It was dark. It was all dark. Nothing but dark. And then there was light. Because God kept His promise. Because God always 
keeps his promises. And so we look back. We look back and we thank God. We're grateful that he's not just a God who makes promises, but that he keeps his promises. Now, there's two things to consider there. One is the character of God, and the other is his track record. First, God's character. God, God's character is such that it's impossible for him to make a promise and not keep it. Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man, that he should change his mind. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't redirect his course. He has decided what he's going to do, and he does it, no matter what it might look like to us at times. God is, the word is, immutable. That means he never, ever changes. Now, you know that's not true for any of us. We're always changing. We're always making promises and not keeping them. Some of you parents have been brave enough to tell your children, I promise. And you've heard. You've had this little girl look up into your eyes, maybe, and say, But daddy, you promised. I know, honey. I know, but. That's the next word. I know, but things change. Things happen that dad didn't know were, were going to happen. I shouldn't have promised you that. God can't do that. You see, it's impossible for God to do that. He doesn't change. When he says something, it really is as good as done. This is the very character of God. And then we could just look at his track record, too. That's really what we're doing at Advent. We're, we're looking at his track record. He made this promise that he would save us. He made this promise that he would make a way for salvation. He made a promise that he would change our hearts and turn us to him. And as Christians, we say, he kept his promise. This isn't just Christmas magic. This isn't just a myth. This isn't a fairy tale. No, Jesus really was born, and he really was God, and he really did come and live and die for us. So God kept his promise. So, so what that means, on that basis, we now look forward to God keeping his other promises. I mean, that should be where we go. I mean, if we're going to look back and see the, the great, unbelievable, impossible promises that God has kept, what do you want to know now? What other promises are there? I mean, if he keeps all his promises and he makes promises to his people, I want to read his word and I want to know, well, what are the other promises that he has made? So you cannot celebrate Advent without celebrating Advent. You cannot celebrate the first coming of Jesus without celebrating and looking forward to wholeheartedly and hopefully the return of Christ at the second Advent. So we look back, Luke chapter 2. Let's look forward now. And there's so many places that we could go. 
So many places. Your Bible is chock full. But we're going to go to Jude chapter 1. So if you haven't, turned there with me now. It's the very end of the Bible. you got Revelation right before that is Jude. It's just this tiny little letter. There's one chapter. And it's a really depressing little book. It really is. If you read this book, it is a discouraging book. We're going to focus on the last two verses, which are not depressing, but I've got to give you the context. We don't have time to read through the whole letter, but just know this. Jude is, is writing to Christians in Churches that have been infiltrated with false teachers and teaching. And that's the worst thing that could happen to a church. That is the worst thing that could happen to a church. The the worst thing that could happen to a church is that false teachers and false teaching and bad doctrine and bad theology works its way into the church. Because when that happens, people start believing the wrong things and they stop believing the gospel and the gospel is at the heart of the good news. This is what Jesus has done to save us from our sin. So if you cut that off, in a sense you cut everything off. So it's the worst thing that could happen. Their church has been infiltrated with this false teaching and so you've got this fairly negative little book which, which, which makes the last two verses very special. Okay, that's why it's important to understand the, the context. But they're, they're a church in a, in a tough spot. So listen, I'll just give you a sampling. Listen how dark this was and discouraging. If you read through this, he, he, Jude calls these false teachers like 20 different names. They're scoffers, worldly people, They're devoid of the Spirit in verses 18 and 19. In verse 4, he explains what happened. He says they crept in, crept in like animals, like demons. They crept in unnoticed. He says they pervert the grace of God. He says they are designated for condemnation. In verses 10 through 13, Jude says that they blasphemed, that they did not understand that they walked in the way of Cain, that they were shepherds who were feeding themselves. He calls them, listen, unreasoning animals, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead and uprooted. They were wild waves of the sea. They were casting, listen to the picture this. They were wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They were wandering stars for whom, he writes, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved Forever. It is a real downer of a letter. And then Jude warns them in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, right? Because that's the mess of their church. So you need to contend. You need to be on guard and contend for the faith. And then again in verse 21, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. That sounds frightening too. Keep yourself in the love of God. In the midst of all this temptation and all this false teaching, people are dropping like flies. 
People are turning from the gospel and turning from the truth. But each of you, he says, you need to contend for the faith and you need to keep yourself in the love of God. And imagine being there. Imagine being in that church. How would those words of Jude make you feel? Concerned? Anxious? Worried? Fearful? Probably not joyful. So what does Jude do with the last two verses? Well, he looks forward. He looks forward. Again, this is what we must do. We look back and we look forward. We look back at promises made that have been kept and we look forward to promises that have been made and are yet to be fulfilled. That's where joy comes from. So let's get to those final two verses now. At the end of this negative letter, here is how Jude closes. This is what he writes. Now, to Him, this is God, now to Him, and then Jude describes Him, which is the best part, by the way, and we'll come back to these two verses. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, so to that God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be, that word means a scribe. It's not a word we use much. The following, what he writes next, are not qualities that we give to God. Like these things be to you, God. I'm giving them to you, God. These are not qualities that we give to God What Jude is doing here when he is ascribing is he is taking these qualities and acknowledging them as belonging to God. That's what it means to ascribe. That you are acknowledging that these qualities belong to God. And so I am ascribing be glory, which means radiance of light, majesty, referring to royal beauty, dominion, which is universe-controlling power and authority. He is sovereign. God possesses all the rights. Think about that. God possesses all rights. And for how long? How how long do these qualities belong to God? Jude writes, before all time, and now, and forever. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time 
and now and forever. Amen. Well, this is a doxology. The technical term for this is doxology. Doxology just means word of praise. So at the very end of this dark letter, of these warnings, is this word of praise. And he's praising God. If we look carefully, he's praising God for what God is able to do and what God will do in every Christian which will result in great joy. End of verse 24. On that day we will have great joy. So what is he doing? He's looking forward. This is a promise for us to take this and to look forward. So let's look more closely. Let's make sure we understand what Jude is saying here. The first part. Now to him. And he tells us about God who is able to keep you from stumbling. Christian, God is able to keep you from stumbling. Well, it's good news because you're not able to keep yourself from stumbling. I try, I still stumble. God will keep you from stumbling. Specifically, what this means is, Christian, you will not stumble away from God. God is able to keep you faithful. Sometimes barely. Just barely. But faithful nonetheless. God is able to keep us. 1 Peter 1.5 Describing us as believers who by God's power, we by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Thessalonians 5 23 says the same thing. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's the promise. He will surely do it. God is faithful. Do you see how different that is than saying, hey, you are faithful and you will do this. It doesn't say that at all. It says that he who called you, he is faithful and he will surely do it. Philippians 1.6 and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He saved you. He began a good work. He didn't, he didn't rescue you out of the ocean. He didn't pull you up onto the ship only to throw you back in. 
This is not what God does with his children. He keeps you, and he will see it through to completion. So we have to look forward and believe and trust in order to have joy. And I love the picture of this that's in John chapter 10. This is beautiful imagery. It's the same promise here. God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you from falling away. And the image that that Jesus gives is is that, that you as a Christian are in His hand. And He's closed His hand around you. Now, Jesus is God. God has closed His hand around you. And no one and nothing can get you out. John 10, 26, or 27. My sheep, Jesus is speaking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Which implies that people will try. The enemy will certainly try. My father, verse 29 My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's like this Trinitarian grasp. Here, God the Father, God the Son, we have got you in our hands and nothing and no one can ever snatch you out of our hands. But there will be times in your life and there were times in the lives of those who were in the churches that Jude was writing to where there's trouble and there's temptation and you're sinning and people are sinning against you. You feel lost and you feel forgotten by God. You feel distant. And you need to be reminded in those times that God is a loving Father. And and once He has adopted you, He never gives you up. It's permanent. It's forever. He opens the front door. He brings you into his house. He says, this is your house. This is your table. This is your food. This is your protection. And it's yours forever. 
And not only will I never give you up, no one's ever getting in here and taking you out. Because John 10, I'm greater than all. You understand no one is even able. And I'm incapable of breaking promises. So you have this to look forward to. <laughs> Some of you right now, because this is the preaching of God's word and the Holy Spirit is active in a special way during the preaching of his word. And, and you're hearing this and, and right now in this moment you're believing it and your heart is filled with joy. But what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow in the middle of the week? You're going to get distracted. Your mind's going to be taken off of this and that joy, it's fleeting. It will be gone. What do you need to do? You need to look back. You need to look forward. You need to hold on to and cling to the promises of God. You will forget. Some of you already forgot. What's he talking about again? So we've got to be in this practice of looking back and looking forward. Thomas Schreiner writes, Your faithfulness until the end, however, it is not due to your own nobility or inner strength. It is God himself who keeps his own from falling away. He grants the ability to stand before God blameless and joyful on the last day. Four weeks of pent-up sermon emotion. <laughs> then he says this, and, like there's an and after that. Are you kidding me? To keep you from stumbling and, so there's more, there's more, and we could keep going. And to present you blameless, I'm not blameless. But he's going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's your joy. That's your joy. You're going to be presented blameless and you're going to have great joy. You're not going to feel bad about it. You're not going to feel guilty. You're going to be filled with joy. So Christian, that means now that at the second advent of Christ, you will be presented before God as holy and blameless. Now get this, holy and blameless in Christ. Like I said, I'm not blameless. You're not blameless. I sin. You sin. Christ does not. That's why his people are described as being in Christ. His righteousness is given to us. His blamelessness is given to us. Ephesians 5.27 So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Colossians 1.22 He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He goes on, verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, and how is God our Savior? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else. No one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only one name. Through Jesus Christ, God is our Savior. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now put this all together. This is how we celebrate Christmas. We want to do it right. This is how we celebrate Christmas, looking back and looking forward. Looking back to the first advent, it promises that were made and then kept, and looking forward to the second advent, it promises that will be fulfilled. So in conclusion, I know as always that there's two kinds of people here today. I know we're different in lots of ways and could be divided up into, I suppose, many different categories, but spiritually speaking, there's only two. There are those who are believers and there are those who are not believers. Some of you, I'm sure, are here today and you are not a believer. You don't love God. You don't believe the gospel. You don't follow Jesus. Maybe you're not even interested. And then some of you are here. I hope and pray most of you, I believe most of you, and you are believers. You believe that Jesus Christ came and gave himself up for you. In the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in him. And you live not perfectly, but you live for him. And not for yourself and not for anyone else. And you desire to know God. You desire to trust God. And to obey him and to enjoy him and to proclaim him. And for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who are believers, we call you believers because the way you became a Christian is you believed something. And what you believed is the good news. So if you're here and you're not a believer, let me remind you of the good news. The best news. The truth is that there is a God and he is good and he is great. He has made everything. He's made you, and He's made you for Himself. He's made you to love Him. He's made you to worship Him. And you won't be ultimately satisfied in anything else by anything else unless you're doing what you've been made to do. It's to worship Him, to obey Him, to treasure Him. The truth is that we are not good. And we are not great. We haven't loved God the way we should. We've rejected Him. We've disobeyed Him. We've ignored Him. We've gone our own way, which has not gone well for us in the past, and it will not go well for us in the future. Romans 3.10 says, None of us is righteous, no, not one. The truth is that when we die, our souls are going to live on. 
And your soul is either going to live on to God or away from God. If we lived away from God on earth, when we die, our soul will be sent away from God forever. That judgment will be eternal and irreversible. Hebrews 9.27 Every man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. But here's the good news. The good news is that God is merciful. He has made a way for you to be forgiven. He has made a way for you to be changed. He has made a way for you to be accepted. And the way is Jesus. He is the hero of the story. He is the one we're looking back to and looking forward to. He is the one who came for God's glory and our good. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. In our place, Jesus came as a substitute. In our place, He lived perfectly the way you and I should live. And in our place, He was crucified, enduring the price that we should pay. That is the good news. And in response to that good news, everyone is called to repent and believe. That means that we are called to believe this good news and to submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord as Savior, as treasure. And if we do, we are saved. And when we die, like Christ, we will conquer death and live forever with God and one another in paradise. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you are here and you are not a believer, then I would call you now to believe. Not in Christmas magic, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And salvation cannot be found anywhere else. The rest of you are believers, my brothers and sisters. So ask yourself this Advent, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? Family? Your husband or wife, your, your kids, your friends, work maybe, projects maybe, sports, entertainment, movies, Christmas. What is it? What? brings you joy. Now, ultimately, what should bring you joy, Christian? 
Or what should bring you the most joy? Or what should anything that you take joy in be traced back to? It's God. So we should look back. We should look back this week at promises that have been made by God and promises that have been kept. And we should look forward. We should look forward to promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Every Sunday here at Veritas, following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. We spend this special time now with God and with one another. We do this in obedience to Jesus who told us to do this. We do it to remember His sacrifice. We do it to proclaim His sacrifice. We even do it to display that to one another and to those around us. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for... As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This time of communion is certainly for those of you who are part of this church family, but maybe you're here and you are just visiting. Well, you still would be welcome to take this meal with us if you're a baptized believer, you're a Christian who has turned from sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus for salvation. And if you are committed to a local church, maybe it's not this one, maybe there's another one where you hear the same gospel preached that you heard preached here today. If that describes you, then you are welcomed as a believer to share communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve. We ask you to come forward through the center aisle, grab the bread and juice, and then if you'd return to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word through which you feed us. You give us truth, truth that is for life, so that we can live a life that pleases you, also so that we can live a life that is filled with joy, satisfaction, contentment. So thank you, God, for feeding us your word today. And now in response... We come before you and we, we take this bread and we drink this juice together and we remember how this has all been made possible because you came and rescued us from our sin. So we love you. We give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.